0: Hello and welcome to New Books in American Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Tom Cryer, today's host. Today, I'm delighted to be talking to Dr. Cody Dodge-Ewart about his 2022 book, Making Schools American, Nationalism and the Origins of Modern Educational Politics, out now with Johns Hopkins University Press. Making Schools American investigates how a generation of progressive-era school reformers touted the capacities of the public school system to instill national values, equalize socioeconomic relations and strengthen democracy, all by creating model American citizens out of high school students. Investigating turn of the 20th century, New York, Utah and Texas in that order, Dr. Hewitt uncovers the educational promises and ideals that underlay a historic expansion in US educational provision in the early 20th century and also provides the backdrop to debates concerning the mission of public education in America that remain very present today. To introduce my guest, Cody dodge Hewitt is an Associate Editor at the Montana Historical Society. Originally from Powell, Montana, he earned his BA and MA in History from the University of Montana and a PhD from New York University. He worked as a Managing Editor at the South Dakota Historical Society Press before taking up his current role in Montana. Dr. You, warm welcome to the New Books Network. To start off with a traditional New Books Network question, could you tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to studying history, and really where this project started from?
1: Well, first of all, thanks for having me today. I'm always excited to talk about the book, and um, it's great to be on the New Books Network. I've listened to a handful of these, as of most people, so yeah, it's great to be talking to you today. Um, so uh, you know the where did this project start from? How did I start studying history? Thing, I mean, that goes pretty that that can go pretty deep. Um, you know, I kind of came to history relatively late in my academic career. Um, it's not necessarily something as a, a, a as a student that is. You know, it's not necessarily something as a as a kid that I always knew I wanted to do. Um, you know, when I was growing up, my main interests were just like. You know, music, basketball, you know, that was the sort of stuff that I was interesting, interested in. But, you know, the thing was that I I, I would really dive deep. I, I really wanted to know what the context of all these things I liked was, you know, it wasn't really enough for me to just like a band or to appreciate the nuance of the triangle offense or something. I really wanted to kind of dig into this stuff. I read as much as I could about it. Um, So fast forward to college. And, like a lot of college students, especially, you know, I was a first gen college student. I'm from a rural area. Um, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. I wasn't sure what I was doing. Um, but I, I kind of t- remember taking an intro history class. And that was really my first introduction to history as a way of thinking. And it really grabbed me. And I thought, well, I can see myself doing that um, in part because I, you know, I already liked kind of digging into things in that way so so it just kind of really grabbed me and it was interesting you know at first I thought I'd probably teach high school somewhere in rural Montana like where I grew up but I came to really love the research and writing part too much um, which led me to grad school so now to address the second part of the question about the project and this is kind of like the music and sports thing actually kind of intersects here. Because my first big research project I did as an undergrad, an undergraduate was about controversies surrounding the national anthem at sporting events. Um, so doing that led me to work more on kind of American nationalism broadly. And kind of following that kind of national anthem thread, I started to look at the origins of patriotic rituals and rhetoric in schools. So. Uh, By the time I started working on my master's degree, that was uh, my topic. And I was kind of looking more at the classroom side of the equation back then. Um, But, you know, when I began my PhD program, I started to look outward and kind of think about how communities, parents, and reformers themselves really viewed these practices and how they fit into this broader story of progressive school reform. So that's the kind of soup to nuts um, version.
0: Great. That's fantastic to hear. Um, it's always amazing to hear um, the varied routes by which people come to this. and um, Really exciting to hear that background. Um, you know, as you say, this book is situated and it's what makes it so powerful. It's situated in a point where as many students of American history will know, these debates about American nationalism are absolutely everywhere. What it means to be American, who's American, who's un-American. So, kind of start us off thinking about this project, Making Schools American, could you talk us about why nation-building seemed so important to these people, to these historical actors at this time, again, at the turn of the 20th century, and how your project and how considering the role of schools in these kind of debates, um, you know, sheds a different light on this kind of traditional um, uh, understanding of the era?
1: Yeah, well, and uh, in, in that's... That's great, too. That's a great question. I mean, and so for one, this is a transnational story, right? I mean, this is after all uh, the age of nationalism. Um, European governments are also pouring a lot of effort into schools and citizenship training into school systems. And so educators in the US, um, in addition to just people in the US generally, they, they see that clearly. But You know, on the education side, they lack these sort of centralized national school systems that they have in Europe. Uh, Americans have this sort of patchwork system that's very kind of state focused, local. Um, So they have this sort of challenge of sort of making kind of a coherent national citizenship training program out of this out of out of, you know, again, this patchwork that we have in America. Uh, So that's kind of the important educational context. And of course, yeah, there's these massive changes happening in every corner of the country. There's these huge demographic and economic shifts, obviously, in sort of the Northeast and the East Coast. We see that in the form of industrialization, immigration, the the TIONs everyone talks about in the period, right? Um, um, Those are two among the many, right? (laughs) So... So, I mean, those are these obvious contexts, but they're also, um, they're also raising these big questions about the future of the country and how we kind of make sense of these changes and how we adapt. Um, There's a lot of talk about meeting the challenges of the 20th century. Uh, That's a kind of constant refrain you hear. Um, So, You know, with the immigration question, especially, there's also this angle of, well, how do we make these people and their children into American citizens? Um, The answer almost always in some way or another was education. Um, So then meanwhile, you know, in other parts of the country, in the south, it's not been that long since the Civil War. And there's still this lingering question of how to sort of reincorporate these like rebel states back into the nation. Um, Not to mention the kind of fiercely contested question of what the role that black Americans are going to have in that process, especially after the uh, the kind of premature end of the Reconstruction era. So how do we make sure that rising generation in the South really understands their place in the nation and understands themselves as part of the United States? Um, Education, again, is most often the answer to that question. So, out west, there's something else entirely different going on, right? I mean, the pace of settlement and conquest of that region really increases dramatically in the late 19th century. Um, You know, the map of the continental U.S., as we know it today, is kind of completely filled in by 1920. But in like 1880, that's not the case. I mean, very few of those states were states um, 40 years earlier. So creating those governments, creating sort of functioning parts of the nation, that's a big question. How do we do that? How do we square that circle? Um, and of course, the pro- that process is also leading to kind of the disp- dispossession of Native lands, right? Um, and that's also a crucial thing happening here. And again, education at all angles of this is kind of positive as the answer to both all of these questions. How do you make these new states American? How do you deal with you know, the so-called Indian question out West. So yeah, there's, it's, it's, you know, there's, there's <laughs> to say the least a lot going on and a lot of it pivots around these questions of nation building um, and meeting, uh, you know, these challenges posed by the coming century and keeping pace with what people in the U.S. see as their sort of uh, counterparts or maybe even their rivals
0: abroad. Right. Great. Yeah. And it's, it's worth saying i said a question ago about the strengths of this book another strength of this book is as i said in the introduction covering new york utah and texas those are three states which give very different perspectives on this and very different case studies of this movement um and we'll come to that later um to introduce the work a bit further i wonder if you could just introduce us to the main historical actors um in this work you class them kind of as a progressive reformers but I wondered if you could talk a bit more about what their backgrounds were, why they came to education, and why were they so keen on selling the advantages of schooling, the benefits of schooling? Could you be cynical and say this was kind of a process of justifying their employment, justifying funds, or was there, you know, was this attachment to nation building more profound and more ideological and intellectual than that?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of funny because seems like every, uh, and th- I guess this is broadly true of the progressive era too, but it seems like every educator in any sort of position of power during this period saw themselves as a progressive or as a reformer. Um, you don't really see anyone staking their claim on, you know, let's stay the course or, you know, stasis. There's not a lot of arguments for stasis at the time, right? Um know that's why we can call it the progressive era this was just like a language that people used to describe seemingly everything you know it was just the way people talked. um so seemingly all of these educators are seeing themselves as forward-thinking as progressive um and generally when you know i'm talking of the, the actors i'm talking about are often school administrators uh who you know, likely started as teachers and just sort of climbed the promotional ladder to the point where they're principals, superintendents, uh, state educational officials who sometimes come from just the world of politics. But, you know, often there's some sort of educational background there. Um, So, again, all these people want to brand themselves as forward thinking, as progressive. So in that sense, yeah, like nation building is important to them. I mean, that's what they see as the point of the entire enterprise. And it's also something that they can use to sort of frame what they do uh, in a way that lends gravity to it um, in the clearest way. Um, you know, schools, as many of them will say, are what's gonna lead us into the 20th century, what will allow us allow us to meet the challenges of this rapidly changing world. Um, But yeah, to be sure, like status is a part of that education, is a part of that equation. Um, And it always has been for educators in the U.S., right? And largely that's because they don't really, they've never had a lot of it. Um, You know, it's not a high powered uh, position uh, then or as we see still now. Um, So So, yeah, there's, is there a degree of kind of self aggrandizement going on there with their adoption of this kind of, this kind of very broad language, like, probably, but I also don't see a lot of evidence of insincerity in the sources. Um, You know, I, it's, it's very easy to read these things cynical, cynically, but uh, at the same time, I don't think we have any reason to doubt that these people believed their own hype, right? I mean, seems to me like they really did feel like this mattered um saying schools make the nation of course i mean that's a good argument for job security at the turn of the 20th century but you know if these people didn't believe that on some level they probably wouldn't have lasted very long in the profession um which is you know that is now not a lucrative field nor very high status so so yeah um i think there i think there's a lot of buy-in among the administrators certainly and uh, the rank and file teachers to the extent that we can really gauge that which you know is one of like the weaknesses in the sources this week just it's hard to get average teacher voices but yeah on the administrative level uh, absolutely
0: great great um maybe another tension within these group of progressive reformers as ever with american nationalism it's divided there are civic and what we might call liberal nationalist ideas intermingling with more racially based more exclusivist uh more nativist ideas and what it means to be an American um I, I turned to the footnotes as I often do when reading these books and um, saw on page 173 that you categorize the reformers visions as liberal nationalists but note that they also had decidedly illiberal liberal elements that those two um, elements are intermingling you also later on note attention between the new nationalism of the clergyman josiah strong a very kind of famous and renowned proponent for american exceptionalism and the more social gospel aligned movement of a figure like francis bellamy if that's on page 47. so how did these reformers visions account for the world of race account for the world of you know not only these debates about americanism but the realities of american empire at this point as well and as you say that. The process of indigenous erasure that's going on, uh, particularly in these western states, at this time.
1: Yeah. Uh, so first, I mean, always love a good footnote question. Um, you know, delightful to be in the company of folks who read the footnotes. Uh, <laughs> yes. So, yeah. Um, you know, nationalism, and I think I hope this is one of the takeaways people get uh, from the book. It, it's it's a very fungible concept around the twentieth century. Um, you have people from a lot of different ideological perspectives, all the way from your Josiah Strongs to your Francis, Francis Bellamys, and even some people whose politics were, you know, even more to the what we may think of now as the left than Bellamy, even right. Um, So, you know, I understand that on the surface, you know, if you're looking at these things on the surface, it can seem like all the folks who championed patriotic education, this this sort of stuff at the time, were on the same page politically. Um, But that's really not the case. Instead, they all tend to believe that whatever their particular vision is of what America is and what it can be is what's going to win out in the end. Um, They all use, they all sort of see nationalism and sort of national development and state building as a means toward different kinds of ends. You know, they embrace this sort of celebratory and kind of public facing valences of this in the same way, but they kind of have different ideas about what this is all kind of leading to. Um, So in regard to race and ethnicity, uh, this is particularly true as well, because different reformers have different ideas about what education means in that sense, you know, Uh, and let me be clear that we're typically on for the most part talking about white reformers here Um, that's these are the folks we're talking about so you know these white reformers they tend to view education either as sort of a true equalizer or as kind of a sorting mechanism so there's this sense among some educators that anyone regardless of race or ethnicity can become an upstanding citizen a key part of this you know democratic Public that they're trying to build. However, the catch there is that that generally requires a complete adoption of sort of white Protestant culture, right? Um, these people are not kind of cultural pluralists uh, in any sense. Um, there's definitely a sense of kind of cultural chauvinism, like the superiority of the standard traditional American way of doing things. Um, and then and this is more of your kind of Josiah strong outlook, maybe. There are those who still wanted racial and ethnic minorities to receive an education, but one that would kind of tailor them for separate subservient roles in society. Right. There's no notion from certain corners that like the education we're giving to these different groups of people is going to elevate them to our level, which is the way some people would talk. Um, So, Both of those strains are kind of at work in the Native American boarding schools, Um, right? I think they're a really good uh, lens through which to view both of these ideas at work. You know, when you see these before and after photos that they would show Native students that they would distribute as propaganda, basically, you know, the implication was that we can make these kids white. Um, You know, that's kill the Indian, save save the man. That's the the quote that always gets used. But at the same time, most of those schools aren't typically giving those students a classical education, right? So while the framing is that like, oh, well, we can take these, we can sort of pluck these kids from their tribes, from the traditional ways of life, and just elevate them into, you know, the finest, most upstanding American citizen. They're not really giving them those kinds of educations, right? They're training them for lives in manual labor or domestic labor. And of course, you know, we know Now that those schools were often kind of unflinchingly brutal, these students were, in many cases, not treated well at all, to say the least. But, you know, the public-facing side of that was really different. It was like, wow, look at the magic that these people can work as educators. Um, And so public school leaders actually saw that as kind of an inspiration um, of, you know, an example of this is really the transformative power of education at work. So
0: so yeah i think that's great great and while we're talking about the limitations of this vision it's fair to say the agenda also plays an important role here um you have these really colorful and beautifully illustrated and recounted scenes of parades um in various locations um the columbus centennial parade in brooklyn um page 49 the pioneer jubilee in utah page 95 all of these have very specific roles for what women who go to these schools um are allowed to do and allowed to display to the local populace you talk about um on page 49 quote the gendered ideal of citizenship could you explain how that operated i'm particularly interested if there was any pushback against that given um it's worth mentioning here that many of these performers many of these progressive educators that you are talking about we're also women.
1: Yeah, that's, you know, how women fit into the kind of citizenship equation here is really fascinating. Um, you know, in the West, of course, during this period, we're seeing the earliest successes of the suffrage movement, right? Um, in Utah, specifically, you know, Utah and Wyoming were at the leading edge of the suffrage movement in terms of kind of giving women the right to vote. Um But, of course, you know, Easterners saw suffrage in Utah as a way for Mormons to manipulate women and to keep the church in power. Um, But, you know, generally outside of these places where women can vote and they are allowed a larger say in matters of governance, you know, in the West specifically, the role of women as citizens is framed in terms of their value as future mothers, as homemakers, and to some extent as teachers. So that's kind of what you see in some of these public parades as, or parades as women, um, or young schoolgirls, I should say, uh, kind of filling the role as we're the future nurturers, the boys are the future leaders and the soldiers. That's the kind of classic dynamic there. Though so again, the teaching thing is where this kind of becomes interesting because, of course, teaching was one of the few routes that women had at the time to elected office or to serving in kind of important positions of power. And it actually plays a really critical role in advancing the suffrage movement in several states. Um, School suffrage, which was the ability of women to vote on educational issues, uh, in many cases preceded full suffrage. So, you know, this stereotype of women is nurturers as kind of natural teachers is actually something that leaders in the suffrage movement could use to their advantage because women could prove their sort of civic competence by serving on school boards and as you know city county state school leaders um you know I don't get too much into that in the book but I mean that's that's part of what's happening here I mean that's part of the dynamic that we see with um some of these women school leaders right it's this is a way to sort of assert authority and competence while still sort of fitting into that larger uh perception of you know women's sort of proper role in society and you know that actually that sort of opened those doors in a different way but yeah you know a lot of this what you see from the top going on here is generally just kind of the more stereotypical view of how, uh, you know, women serve as um, of the role they play in sort of nurturing great men into leadership or something like that, right? But yeah, there. But there's another side of that story too, and you know, women's key role in education as teachers and later as administrators is is part of that in a different way. So,
0: yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Um much like on race it kind of seems that this is not a single movement right there are lots of strands to this and there are lots of um, ideological divides and intellectual divides and operational divides um which again this book um comes across really well um finally before we kind of move to the specific chapters and the states I wondered about how this educational program how these na- nation-building institutions are demonstrating their value on the national stage As I said in the last question, there are lots of points in this book where you you take the reader to these big parades, these big state days, these national holidays. George Washington Day in Salt Lake City, the Columbus Centennial, as I mentioned earlier. And really interestingly, Arbor Day, which is quite a unique holiday in that it's set up to promote arboriculture, even uh, in Nebraska. And then becomes kind of this patriotic ritual. Um, Why was displaying... The benefits of education through such um, publicly visible spectacles important to these educators and what might we learn from that about the relationship between these schools this idea of what those schools should do and their communities
1: yeah you know um, the arbor Day thing is really one of the one of the things that surprised me the most in my research, like I really didn't expect Arbor Day to play a key role in this project. Um, <laughs> and the fact that it does is sort of delightful in a way. Um, uh, but, you know, I mean, Arbor Day is just, it. it it's such a, it, it, it's kind of back to that very original purpose now. It's just like you go plant some trees, right? So to see that there's this sort of moment in time, this extended moment in time, where it's this very, very important part of this larger movement uh, was really fascinating for me. And, you know, I hope that people that read the book kind of enjoy that stuff because I really liked writing it. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, you know, in the really common school days, right, in the early 19th century, educators you know had a tough time getting parents to care about schools and to even kind of come visit the school like it was sort of pulling teeth you know i'm i'm reviewing this new book this it's a it's a it's a pretty great book by wade morris it's called report cards a cultural history um so sort of spoiling my review here uh, by saying it's 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 interesting and good, but, um, but he points out in the first chapter of the book that that's actually one of the main reasons that the report card is invented, right? It's a way of sort of bringing the school to parents to sort of say, Hey, here's what's going on here. Um, And here it is in sort of a very understandable way. Like, here's how your kid is doing. And that kind of worked to get, you know, some interest going on there. And of course it also helps get parents on the side of the teacher. because they can see it from the teacher's side, you know, how the kid's doing, right? Um, but, but you know, because they, they often didn't care before they had kind of tangible ways of seeing that, right? So along those lines, these school celebrations develop as a way to sort of promote the school and to cast what's going on there in a positive light. Um, you know, you can showcase students' work, you can show them, you know, doing fun presentations and doing things for the community and that sort of suggests that, hey, maybe this isn't a bad thing after all. I mean, they also really help cast schools as community centers, which, of course, is a role in a lot of communities that mainly churches fill before. So as a result of the school being this kind of community center, that can bring together folks who might otherwise stick in their kind of particular church community together. Um, so, so it sort of has that sort of effect. You know, the Arbor Day uh things are a great example of this too, right? Because they serve a dual purpose. They beautify the school grounds. You plant trees, makes the school it looks makes it look better. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. You see some of these older pictures of schools when they're first built, and often it's literally a building in the middle of kind of a barren field. Uh you know, these old school photos are really striking. Um so, you know, Arbor Day tree planting, it sort of just helps make them look like cozier environments, it looks nicer. And it brings people over and, you know, they would often sing patriotic songs, they'd fly the flag, they would do things like that to sort of also, you know, again, signal that there's, there's a bigger thing going on here too. Um, so yeah, it, it's a way to signal that there's this broader, this broader project that we're all a part of by sending our kids to school. And, you know, tellingly now, hey, look, you're you're at the school and look, there's a big American flag flying atop the building now. Right. So it's a very local institution. It serves a local purpose, but um, it also helped make clear that there's a bigger picture thing happening here, too. So.
0: great, Great. Um, Yeah. As I said. To do the parades, the spectacle, I'm glad you enjoyed writing it because it was really good passage to read and really exciting to read as well the specter really comes across um in this book um and that are days yeah the, the bit that the most surprised me as well um not knowing about the intricacies of nebraska politics um so it's really exciting to read about that um <laughs> to kind of move to the individual states you move through um to talk about maybe chapters three and four um you've kind of opened the story by talking about new york where a lot of these discourses a lot of these ideas come from then you turn to utah um which has an exceptionally successful public schooling system public schooling project um in the late 19th century that you argue fulfills a very specific purpose um it celebrates the state's reputation um it celebrates the capacity of utahns and specifically the mormon population there um to show their american right that there are american ideals american institutions growing in the state could you briefly i know this is quite difficult to summarize (laughs) quickly um tell us about what's going on in the educational politics of utah and kind of maybe why you chose that case study and what that case study reveals about this wider national um, school building effort
1: yeah you know i I wish i had a I wish I had a kind of a sophisticated rationale for why I, I chose Utah here, um, and it, but I can say it was really just a hunch. I, I thought, I thought, man, I wonder what's going on. Here. I bet Utah is would be interesting here. Um, you know, not really knowing, right? I, I I knew I needed, I I knew I wanted to go west with the study study, and I wasn't sure exactly where to go. I was like, well, California's been done a lot, you know. Let's let's think of something interior. Um, and so I just, I've always been fascinated by Utah. It's just, you know, I think the story of Utah, if you're thinking about individual state stories is, is really unique in American history because of the outside role of the church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints in the state. Right. So I just kind of had a hunch that maybe there'd be something here. And so just when I started looking, it became clear like, oh yeah, this is, this is perfect. Um, Utah's piece in this story is turns out to be really fascinating. Um, so in the territorial days, there's no centralized public school system in Utah territory. Now that's not to say there aren't any schools or or that there aren't any free schools, but they're generally known to be local schools that are affiliated with the church, that is the the LDS church, which is by far the kind of dominant, institution in the state socially and politically and i mean the territory at the time the territory which would become a state um so for utah to earn statehood uh there's some conditions it has to meet because there's this whole matter of polygamy that needs to be resolved um and easterners are very up in arms about the sort of known practices of polygamy among members of the church um so so That's part of it, but you know, creating a centralized school system also turns out to be a condition of this uh, not only like ending polygamy, but also you know, you need to send these kids to centrally controlled state schools. Um, the idea being that that will make it harder for the church to sort of uh, control what is and isn't taught in the schools, right? It's coming from a central source, uh, it has a curriculum that uh people uh, at higher levels of government can sort of monitor and oversee right i mean that's sort of the thinking um so again like you have these people from the east looking into utah who are seeing public schooling as a way to americanize the state right to sort of iron out what they see as these sort of weirdnesses about it and make it a sort of a legible and normal part of the country uh so, again, thinking back to what I was saying about how a lot of these reformers refer- bu- reviewed race, there's a clear parallel with how they see the Latter day Saints. Um, but the church in Utah also comes to see public schooling as a way to prove their own patriotism, you know, that they're just as American as any kind of run of the mill Protestant. So, both sides come out of this thinking that they're responsible for the fairly remarkable growth. Of the school system in the state, which you know quickly gets this sterling reputation nationally. Um, Utah's so Utah's very quickly upheld as this example of the transformative power of schooling. Um, you know, you have a lot of reformers using these examples of like, "Wow, look how great the school system is!" To say like, you know, this was a wasteland. It was there's nothing going on educationally, which of course wasn't entirely true, but. They could sort of say, like, look at what this did. It sort of transformed this place that was just this backward provincial, you know, controlled by this, what they would sort of frame as this weird, weird church. And now these people are are just American as apple pie, right? Um, meanwhile, the Latter-day Saints could say the same thing. They could say, hey, look, this just proves that we belong. We're just as patriotic as anyone. We can We can be, we can out-American anybody, right? They're just as committed to the strengthening of the nation as anyone. So, so yeah, um, the the Utah example really helps further this kind of bigger educational project.
0: Uh, Yeah, Fantastic. (laughs) Going to the opposite end of the spectrum, chapter five goes south to Texas, where it's fair to say there's initially some concern to put it lightly, about public education, about the building of public education schools and the kind of influences that might have on children, um, you very carefully trace how Texans come to terms with this project, essentially, come to terms with this movement kind of appropriate it in certain directions. Um, for example, on page 127, you state that, quote, the nationalistic cast of public education provided a comforting example of how progress and tradition could coexist and on page 163, that um quote educational progress came only once white elites agreed that it could help help prop up even the status quo. Obviously, there's an immense amount of kind of calculation and bargaining and interest being served there. Um, what I, I guess it's kind of an obvious question, but what made Texas's case quite so unique? but more to the point of it, not only why is it unique, but what have been the legacies of that uniqueness? Um, maybe if we're to look in the aftermath um, of this movement going into the 1930s and 40s and 50s.
1: Yeah, you know, again, Texas is just another one of those places uh, like, you know, states like, you know, Utah that it's kind of, it sort of has its own its own history. I mean, it's the only, it's, I mean, no other no other state you know none of its other neighbors were its own republic briefly right i mean (laughs) that's its own thing um and it sort of fits in so many different parts just in part by virtue of being a huge state right i mean it fits in so many different parts of the nation like it's southern it's part of the south you know politically in so many ways but it's also a great plains state it's also kind of a western state and it's a border state with mexico which is very crucial to it's history and what happens in Texas politics now. So it's a really unique place and you can sort of, you can look at a lot of different angles by sort of studying Texas. So early on there's pushback to kind of early progressive school reform attempts in Texas because many people in the state don't really see the need to give everyone a modern education or they're sp- suspicious of what that might mean for the place um, to say the least. Now, a large part of that is concern coming from from you know, white elites that educating black citizens and Mexican Americans could upset the pe- pecking order. Um, There's also kind of a general sense that rural people generally don't need the same kind of instruction that their more kind of well-to-do or well-positioned counterparts and sort of centers of power in the state might receive. Um, You know, there's just kind of a general notion of like, how is that relevant to the life of a farmer? You know, why do they need this kind of an education? Which people had, you know, of course people had encountered that in the East Coast too. Um, in states like New York. But often those matters were settled earlier in the 19th century. Um, people came around in those smaller communities to the the purpose and the usefulness of schools earlier on. In Texas, that lingered for much longer. And in part, I think kind of the race and class elements there are were just a bit stronger deterrence to the adoption, to be sure. Um, so the task for the reformers who wanted to bring Texas up to speed with the rest of the com- country, because this is the other point, Texas and a lot of the other states in the south, you know, legged very far behind in most sort of standard educational metrics um, anywhere else in the country, you know, uh, the other states uh, were sort of lapping these places in terms of just basic things like literacy rates, school attendance, all of that stuff so. You know, the school, of, school reformers, the school leaders in the state, they're prideful people. They believe in the bigger project of schools. They want Texas to have a strong education system. They want to be part of that national conversation that's going on, too. So they have to try to thread this needle. Um, and largely, they do that by appealing to kind of ideas of Texas pride as much as they do national pride. Um, you know, they're invoking invoking the legacy of Sam Houston and Stephen F. Austin a lot. Uh, and they try to tell people like, hey, look, things are changing around us. And if we don't change, too, we'll really be left in the dust. Um, so it helps them make these arguments that <clears throat> the racial politics of schooling begin to kind of tilt in a direction that some of these elites and some of these people that are skeptical of uh, you know, of this sort of massification of ed- education, sort of giving everyone access to schools, that people who were suspicious of that could kind of get behind. Finally, right? Um, over time, the argument that there's you know different tracks that there's different tracks of school for different groups that really kind of begins to win out, um, especially with the rise of eugenics. So it becomes clear that they can offer kind of separate, unequal schooling to certain students. Um, And that, you know, many of the reformers by that time, which is, you know, closer to 1920 around World War I and after, were arguing that was actually the much more efficient and progressive way of organizing your schools. Um, So modernizing the system becomes a much easier sell when that is what's construed as progressive. And that's really what you see happening across the South with kind of the rise of Jim Crow. Right. Um, There's you know people are are much uh they're they're happier to assent to the creation of schools for other people if they can be assured that they're not going to be a threat you know they're not going to be a threat to their status and to their position in society um kind of economically or socially so so yeah that's kind of the that's how the story kind of evolves over time in texas so
0: great great and we'll talk about the modern day consequences of that which I'm sure are um, on the top of people's minds right now um, in a little bit um there's maybe one last question methodologically there's a real trend you know maybe for the last 20 30 years even in the history of in the history of, of the education to prioritize the voice and perspective of the students I'm wondering how does this process, this initiative, this project look different from the eyes of students? And particularly maybe um, if you could kind of speculate the generation that go in these schools, they come to power and um, political and economic and academic prominence during, you know, the 1930s and 1940s, the most um profound era of American um, intervention in the world, and America asserting itself in its ideals and nation building on the international arena. I I do wonder if that's at all a coincidence or if um, this nation building project that you're talking about has a direct influence on on the children receiving it and what they go on to do after they finish their education.
1: Yeah, and and that's a fantastic question. And and, uh, honestly, I wish I had a clearer sense of that. Um, Again, it's a source problem to some extent. But, you know, there are some conclusions we can draw out of that, you know, at the very least, the degree to which nationalism comes to kind of permeate just the day to day practice of schooling and the language of schooling during this period makes it a relatively easy transition for schools to mobilize during wartime right, to sort of recast what they do in the context of supporting the nation, of supporting these war efforts broadly. So I think that we we can say pretty clearly, that is it, that is a legacy of this. But, you know, I'm sort of wary of drawing conclusions about how what students may have learned in the classroom might have conditioned them to be, to be more eager to you know, support war efforts or to support certain political positions over time or to even kind of shape their view of America. As it relates to the rest of the world and part part of, you know, my hesitance there is just that, you know, we, you know, we kind of know that kids don't tend to buy everything that their teachers are selling them. You know, there's there's also that gut thing that we know is true having been kids and knowing people who are kids today. Right. They're often quite skeptical um, and they're also good at knowing just what they need to say to get done with whatever they're doing. Right. They, you know, you know what to say to get through it, to get the grade or to just to just get to get out of there. Um, So, you know, even when you have student papers, when when I would find these things, uh, yes, I I rely on a student newspaper a lot in one of the chapters. Right. Um, And they're full of this patriotic language. Right. But it's hard to sort of say definitively, like, this is what they felt, this is what they believed. You know, they might have just been parroting what they felt, what they should say, or what they heard other people saying. Um, to the extent that stuck with them is kind of really hard to gauge. So, yeah, hard to draw definitive conclusions. Though the funny thing is, I kind of did that in my master's thesis. You know, I kind of remember <laughs> writing something to that extent, uh, you know, mid 20s over confidence, I suppose. But, you know, so I'm walking that back a little bit, you know, if you Google, if you Google me and find my master's thesis, you'll probably see what I'm talking about. Uh, So I'd implore you to read the book instead. Um, (laughs) But yeah, but I definitely, it's it's still a great question. And I think it's absolutely something worth examination. Um, uh, And it's a source. There's absolutely a source problem to deal with there. But um, that's that's an angle on this that I think people people would be wise to look into more in the future. You know, what What exactly did kids take away from this? And if anything, you know, how important were schools versus just kind of parental community influences, cultural, you know, influences in sort of shaping those worldviews? Uh, that still is an open question that we have, right? That's a big debate about schooling. Um, so, yeah, that's... The best answer I can give.
0: Completely. Um, Of course, there's a lot of talk, um, given Jarvis Gibbons' recent amazing book, on the fugitive tradition and kind of what people can accept or reject from education. Um, So I think that's a wise position to take. Um, Inevitably, we need to talk about how this connects to the modern day. Um, Your epilogue goes quite a bit into this. Um, You argue, and this is page 164, that as many of us who follow american politics american history might know schools currently have a starring role in modern politics they're often the key battlegrounds for all kinds of debates um, in a polarized nation to kind of concretize that in the context of this movement what do you see as the specific legacies of this movement today how does that link up to these present struggles um and, you know, ultimately looking at back, looking at the state of American public education today, do you think the reformers would like the picture they see at the moment? Do you think they would have considered that this was more success or more failure um, in their initial goals, um, as we said in the beginning, to elevate the quality of politics and ease social tensions?
1: Right. Um, you know, <clears throat> that you know, on the one hand, public schools have become such a huge part of American life now in a way that would have been hard for even I think their biggest boosters to imagine around the turn of the 20th century you know from kindergarten all the way through high school sometimes even pre-k you know we spend so much of our lives in schools and conversations about schooling are, are such a big part of it's just in the air it's such a big part of our lives um, you know even for people who are out of school for people who don't have kids like Schooling is is huge. It's in the air. And it's it's also, you know, more people go to school for longer periods of time. And yeah, it's 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 a really amazing change. Um, and that's definitely a legacy of this era, era right? Um, but yeah, you know, obviously we haven't stopped arguing about schools, <laughs> certainly, um, nor have they unified us politically, right? Um Again, this is something you connect connect to, you know, you name it in terms of movements in the progressive era, right? They're all sort of cast in these sort of utopian terms. You know, if we adopt this change, everything's going to be, you know, this is going to solve it, right? I mean, you know, prohibition, whatever, that was always the sort of implication. Um, That was the way they thought. And of course, you know, that hasn't happened, right? I mean, I hope if there's, you know, I think maybe a takeaway from this book is maybe that much of much of that has to do in this kind of educational context with the fact that there really never was and still has never really been a consensus over sort of what it means to be a citizen, what it means to be kind of a patriotic citizen. Um, And I hope that kind of comes through, you know, nationalism, I think, for these reformers really worked as a framing device for school reform and as a... uh, as kind of something they could rally behind, precisely because it was a big tent, uh, not because it signaled a specific set of values or ideas. Um, and so we still grapple with those questions in schools, right? They And that's why they're kind of still these they're still ground zero for so many kind of culture wars over what it means to be an American. Um, you know, we're seeing that. Now, in so many different ways and and that's been true for the past century, basically, right? Um, so, yeah, the legacy of this is is complex to say the least. on one hand, I, I definitely think you can draw a line to just the massive growth of education and just it's, you know, of kind of immense importance in our day-to-day lives uh, to this kind of period. But, yeah, it's also sort of opened up some new, Questions and and kind of sown the seeds of different kinds of conflict uh, that often are rooted in schools. So
0: great, great. Um, as I often tell unenthusiastic eighteen year olds who first walked into American history classroom for the first time, <laughs> the best books are the books that um, reveal how we got to where we are now for all the good things and all the bad things um, in the United States at the moment. And this book, certainly does that um expansive wide-ranging colorful points um it really does um suggest how we came to the state um, that we're in today so really exciting to read and I'd recommend all listeners to read it um maybe before we go as we're running out of time here um what's what's next for you um do you have any next projects or at the Montana Historical Society uh, yeah
1: yeah, right. Um, you know, uh, you know, my day to day, I work as an editor, which is something I love, I like I like working on kind of regional history. It's a lot of fun. And I like to have a lot of different things come across the desk and to just learn other uh, kind of facets about, you know, my region and the world around me. That's something I'll never stop getting a kick out of. But yeah, I, I, I do. I, I have some projects running in the background. Um, it's hard to say what form they'll take eventually it might just be articles could be something else, but yeah, I'm always looking and and you know, I can't get away from education. There's still, <laughs> you know, schools continue to fascinate me in one way or another, uh, whether I'm kind of working on a higher education project. That's, that's more rooted in the later 20th century, um, which is kind of a real, which is a real change for me, but I also have some kind of half finished work on, a. uh, school lands in the late 19th century, you know? Um, so, so I, I I've got a couple of things that I'm tinkering with. Um, and yeah, I, I plan to keep doing it. It's, it's fun. Um, and yeah, I I'm really grateful that people uh, have checked out the book and it's great to have this conversation about it. And yeah, I, I hope it's useful to people. Definitely. You know, that's why we do these things. Right. Um, we understand the the value of the conversation and we want to we want to be able to contribute to it you know as a way to thank the people who who did it before us so yeah that's kind of our way of paying it forward in one way or another so yeah um yeah no i'm grateful um so and really appreciated the chance to talk to talk about it today
0: great thank you that's a wonderful note on as we consider ourselves in this tradition all those implications for it um As I say, Making Schools America, Nationalism and the Origins of Modern Educational Politics um, out now with Johns Hopkins University Press came out last year. So available to purchase this very minute. Uh, Dr. Ewart, thank you very much for your time today. Um, Thank you for your wonderful questions. Um, Congratulations on the book. and Yeah, thank you for spending time with us today and uh, giving us your wisdom and knowledge. So thank you.
1: Thank you.